Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20 through 30. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 18, verses 20 through 30. Let's hear now the word of the living God. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with an animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep My statutes and My judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled." lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep My ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Amen. Let's turn now to the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verses 30 through 34. Numbers comes right after Leviticus. Numbers 35, verses 30 through 34. Let's once again hear God's Word, beginning in verse 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. 
For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the second passage that we read, Numbers 35, verses 30 through 34. Let's focus our attention on verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of Him who shed it. So Moses here, speaking under inspiration, the Word of the living God tells us that among the Israelites, one of their judicial laws, one of the commandments that God gave to them for their society, says, you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. That is, innocent blood that has been shed. And no atonement, or literally no cleansing, can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of Him who shed it. I trust that we're all aware of the recent court decision that was announced, I think, on Friday, where in a 6-3 to decision, the United States Supreme Court overturned the previous ruling on abortion, Roe v. Wade, and uh, the, the, the Casey decision as well from the 1990s, which removed uh, the, this constitutional protection for abortion in our country. Now, we may be thinking of our nation at a time like this, but I want us to think about our state. Some of you are here from out of state, but you know you can apply the general equity of what I'm about to say here, but uh, we need to think about our state and we need to think about our community. I love the state of Michigan. I enjoy living here. There are many beautiful places to visit, uh, more than I could probably visit in a lifetime. And so the ad campaign that's been around for some time, Pure Michigan, is something that appeals to me. Uh, I, I like those ads. I, I think they're attractive and I think they, they communicate something that's beautiful about our state. However, uh, there is something about our state that we need to be very, very concerned about. Because every year, at least 25,000 infants in the womb are murdered. Now that had in the past been protected by Roe v. Wade, and we'll see, we'll see where things go from here. Um, in 1931, Michigan passed a law that restricted abortion, that it was illegal except to save the life of the mother. In 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision essentially nullified that, so the law remains on the books, and yet it has not been enforced. So from 1973 to 2022... And counting here with the the recent judicial ruling to put a stay on this decision from the Supreme Court for a time. Uh, From 1973 to 2022, this 49-year period, hundreds of thousands of babies in the state of Michigan have been murdered. 
their innocent blood has been shed. And their blood cries out from the ground such that although we love all the different beautiful vacationing spots in Michigan and we say pure Michigan, at the same time, it would be just as accurate to reflect upon this great scourge of abortion and say impure Michigan. Biblically speaking, our state is defiled and polluted with innocent blood. Impure Michigan. Impure Michigan. We need to recognize that's how God views our state. That's how God views our city. That's how God views our communities that we live in. Akeldama. They are fields of blood. And that's what our text reminds us of here this morning. How crucial is this issue of abortion? Is this just one issue and a long list of political questions and you know we rate how significant these things are and we just leave it leave it at that no this is a crucial issue it's not the only crucial issue it's not the most crucial issue but it is one of the most significant issues that faces the state of Michigan today it strikes at the heart of our ability to survive as a society as a state as a civilization Our survival in the providence of God depends upon how we deal with the pollution and defilement of innocent blood being shed in our land, in our state. If we do not deal with this issue, God will deal with it directly and we will cease to exist as a state. Now the question then arises, why are we looking at verses from Leviticus and Numbers to address this modern day issue? Here we are in 2022, we're in the New Covenant period, the New Testament. Why are we reading sections and selections from the judicial laws of Moses that God gave under inspiration to the people of Israel, to Israel's civil leaders? Why are we reading these verses? What relevance could these scriptural texts possibly have for today. I think it's important in answering this question to turn back to the passage we read from Leviticus. Because sometimes we begin to think that these Old Testament laws were unique to the Jews, or at least the principles behind them were unique to the Jews. So perhaps God says, well, If the Jews shed innocent blood, their land is defiled and they'll be vomited out of their land. But that was just for the Jews. God operated in a special way for them. uh, And He didn't operate that way toward other nations. That's simply not the case. This was not unique to the people of Israel. Leviticus 18, verse 24, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled. That is the Gentile nation. So the same thing that's going to defile the Israelites had already defiled the Gentile nations. And he says, For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. In other words, the other nations committed these sins, didn't punish the shedding of innocent blood and cleanse it away from society. And, and I booted them out of Canaan and I'm sending you to take their place. But if you do what they did or if you fail to do what they failed to do, then you're going to be booted out. You're going to be vomited out. Verse 28, 
He says, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before it. So when God deals with Israel in this manner, He is in no way saying, well, there's a a sort of special, unique situation for Israel. He's saying this is the same principle by which I govern the nations around you. It's not just an Israelite or a Jewish thing. But somebody might say, well, it's it's an Old Testament thing. So God dealt with all nations in the Old Testament in this way, but now in the New Testament, it's different. But you see, that, that's a problem. Number one, because God's attribute of justice has not changed. And number two, because the Scriptures explicitly tell us in the New Testament that these judicial Rules, these judicial pronouncements and judgments and punishments in the Old Testament uh, have an abiding validity. There's a moral principle behind them so that, as our standards say, there's a general principle of equity that applies even today. So, for instance, Hebrews 2, verses 1 and 2. I'll just read this, but you can look that up if you'd like. Hebrews 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So he's telling these professing believers, hold on to the Gospel, hold on to the truths that, is, that, that are embraced by the New Covenant Church. Don't drift away from them. Then he says this in verse 2, for if the Word spoken through angels, that's the law given on Mount Sinai, that's how that would be typically referred to in the New Testament, the Word spoken through angels, This is the law of God given through Moses. If that word proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So the credibility of the teachings of Christ and the theological developments of the New Testament, the credibility of the, the duty we have to embrace these things is grounded by way of analogy here in the trustworthiness and the justice of the rewards and punishments of the Old Testament judicial laws. So these things were not unjust. We're not saying we just cut and paste Old Testament laws in, into the, the, the law books today as legislation, but we're saying there are general principles of equity These are principles of justice. And uh, we have a duty to learn from those principles of equity and to apply them even today uh, among Jews and Gentiles in every nation under heaven. Now there are some people who say, well still, uh, we buy into that general equity, but we think that the death penalty in so many instances in the Old Testament that that death penalty really has been replaced by church discipline. And they would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 13 where Paul is dealing with a case of sexual immorality among the Corinthians and he's urging them to enact church discipline. And he quotes a verse to this end. He says, verse 13, but those who are outside God judges, therefore, quote, put away from yourselves the evil person, end quote. 
and they say, see, he's quoting a, a reference from the Old Testament law that deals with capital punishment, but here he's applying it to church discipline. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that it's unclear that Paul is even referring to capital punishment here from the Old Testament or to any type of civil punishment. It's more likely that he's actually referring to Exodus 12 dealing with the Passover when they had to clean the leaven out of their homes because earlier in the chapter he talks about purging out the old leaven. And in Exodus 12 it says that you put away the person who refuses to put out that old leaven and who refuses to, uh, to come to the Passover with a corresponding life of obedience. And so Paul's actually quoting a verse that deals with Old Testament church discipline and he's applying it for New Testament church discipline. So nowhere in the New Testament does it suggest that the principles of justice and equity applied in the Old Testament civil code has been replaced by church discipline. That would not make any sense. Um, These Old Testament laws deal with civil law. They deal with judicial uh, legislation and judgments. And so that principle of equity would naturally apply today in that very same category of legislation and of judicial punishments and so on. So we need to recognize that uh, there, there is a clear basis for applying this passage to our own situation here in the state of Michigan with this recent court decision. You can see this as well in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, he's just referred to some false teachers that are confusing everybody with with, uh, foolish teachings. He says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So you have teachers coming in and confusing people with this erroneous teaching concerning the law of God. Paul says we need to use the law of God lawfully. Now it's interesting, some of us might think, well, he's going to say, The law doesn't justify you, but it reveals the knowledge of sin. It points you to Christ. It gives you instruction for the Christian life. But that's not the use of the law that Paul is talking about because that apparently is not the use of the law that is being corrupted in Ephesus here in 1 Timothy. And so there are three uses of the law. There is the law revealing our sin, pointing us to Christ. There's the law as a rule of sanctified obedience for the Christian, uh, but there's also the law as a standard for civil justice to restrain sin within a society. And that appears to be the aspect of the law that these individuals are corrupting. Because he then says that to use it lawfully means this. He says, verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. So right there it It can't be referring to the law as a standard for sanctified Christian obedience. Because in that sense, it is made for a righteous person. Jesus loved the law and He was righteous. But He says it was made for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, clearly he's not referring to the law simply pointing out our sin and our need for Christ, because his emphasis here is on heinous crimes against society and against God. The the list there includes virtually all of these things uh, refer to things that were punished with death in the Old Testament. And he's not dealing here with justification. He's dealing with how we understand the Old Testament civil law. He goes on to say, I was a blasphemer. In other words, I committed a sin that was worthy of death. I committed a capital crime according to the Mosaic Law. And God was merciful and saved me. So it's very likely that these false teachers are so latching on to the Old Testament civil law that they're so focused on that that they're forgetting that as the church in Ephesus, their primary mission is to see capital criminals like Paul the blasphemer, the murderer, converted to Christ. Uh, and, And yet at the same time, Paul does affirm that these principles of civil justice do exist and that they are according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, you may ask the question, and I know it's quite a bit of introduction here, but it is important. You may ask the question, again, does that mean that we are bound to every jot and tittle of the Old Testament civil code as if that was on the same par as the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God, or the judicial laws on the same have the same uh, abiding validity as, as the moral law of the Ten Commandments? And the answer is, of course, no. Uh, Jesus famously in Matthew 19 deals with this issue when the, the Pharisees are saying, look, Moses commanded a certificate of divorce in cases that did not involve sexual immorality. So Moses, the law of Moses, the civil code under Moses allowed a broader variety of divorce and remarriage than Jesus says is permissible according to the moral law of God. And Jesus' response, Matthew 19, verse 8, He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, Jesus is saying the Mosaic Law was just, It was equitable. It was in accordance with God's moral character. But it was suitable for Israel at that time. It permitted but restricted and regulated polygamy. It permitted but restricted and regulated things like this sort of frivolous divorce and remarriage. Jesus says that the law of Moses permitted these things because of the hardness of the people's heart. But from the beginning, the moral law, the moral law, was far stricter. So you can see that with these judicial laws, we would hope today to actually be more strict in some of these areas than the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law undoubtedly permitted polygamy. We would say that should be outlawed today. So when we say that there's some type of a a process 
of wisely applying these Old Testament judicial laws without cutting and pasting them. When we say that there's a general equity that has to be wisely applied, we're not saying that the law of Moses should just be diluted and dumbed down to a slap on the wrist. What we're actually saying is in many cases, uh, the Gospel and the New Covenant brings us to an even more, uh, 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 to a standard that's even more uh, in accord, even more according to the moral law of God than the Old Testament. There's an incremental increase in faithfulness that we can see achieved today. So, that's the relevance of our text. It gives us general equity principles that apply today and we need to take them seriously. Now, let's go back to Numbers 35. Let's see what our text actually says. Numbers 35 And verse 30, whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. So it's very clearly saying here that the murder of a human person is a capital crime. It's a crime to willfully, intentionally, unjustly take the life of a human person and these verses tell us that, verse 31, you you can't take a ransom for this person. The person shall surely be put to death. Again, verse 32, there's no ransom. This murder of a human person is a capital crime that must be punished with death. That is the Old Testament judicial law. The word in verse 30 that is translated kills, the word kills refers to striking a death blow. Striking a death blow. The word murderer, which is sometimes translated manslayer, but it it carries the full brunt of murder. As I mentioned earlier, intentional, willful, unjust taking of human life. And the reference here to death is rightly translated as the death penalty. Early on in Scripture, even before the Law of Moses, This principle of equity and justice is articulated for us in Genesis 9, 5, and 6 where God says to Moses and his sons, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man." Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So as God's sending them forth with this dominion mandate to have children and future generations, He he says that this perpetually binding ordinance of justice, the death penalty, is to apply. It shall apply, as we said in our text, there's there's no room for a ransom in the case of capital punishment for the crime of murder. It must be punished with death. And again, it's explicit. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. Now, there needs to be multiple witnesses, and there's a judicial process here, and, and there's obviously divine wisdom in that. But it must be punished with the death penalty. Now, Who or what is a human person? That's the real question. Whoever kills 
a clump of cells. No, whoever kills a person. Well, who or what is a person? In Hebrew, the word that's translated person here is the word nephesh, which means soul or life. You can see the connection between soul and life because we're alive until our soul departs our body, right? So the soul is, is, is the, the life that God has given us. It's our spiritual component to our humanity that gives life to our body and so on. The nephesh, the soul, the life. Anyone or anything that has a human soul has human life and is a human person. Uh, as Dr. Seuss said, no matter how small, uh, if you have a soul. And the Scriptures are clear that infants, even from conception, have a soul and have human life and are persons. You can see an example of this in Exodus 21, verse 22. This is another judicial case law that again gives us that robust general equity that our leaders are, are foolish not to apply today. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so perhaps two men are fighting violently and the wife of one of them steps in to try to break it up, we're, we're not sure. Maybe one of them, uh, perish the thought, goes after to, to try to attack the other man's wife. We're not sure, but uh, two men are fighting. They're engaged in criminal violence, I would say. And somehow a woman is hurt, a pregnant woman. They hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows. He shall be surely punished uh, according, accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine." A sort of civil court case, if you will. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. And that word life is, of course, our word soul, nephesh, person. Life for life. So if the child dies, if the child's soul departs from his or her body, if life is lost, if the soul is lost from the body, if the person is killed, there's the death penalty. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. It's, not, it, it's, it's explicit. How could anybody dispute with this? The Scriptures are clear. The just recompense, Hebrews 2.2, 2, for killing a person, for killing even a person who is in the womb from conception, is that the life of the murderer, the person who took the life, is the murderer. And we know, of course, that uh, if you pay someone to murder somebody else, you hire a hitman, well then, you're the murderer as well. So there are accomplices to murder and, and, and all of that is involved here. But uh, you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if you commit a criminal act and you harm somebody, then there's a punishment that fits the crime. If they die and it's murder, then the punishment that fits the crime is death. Uh, they say an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But no, it just prevents people that go around poking people's eyes out from doing it more than twice. Um, this is biblical justice. It's not the way we handle interpersonal issues with others. 
with, with this uh, vindictive, exacting attitude, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is a great principle for justice. The punishment fits the crime. These men have committed a crime, and they've taken the life of this human person in the womb. Now, there's quite a bit of evidence in the Scripture that these persons in the womb are persons and have souls and are humans from conception. Psalm 139, which we sang earlier in the service. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought. So it even says, verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. So Psalm 51.5, David says that he was conceived and born in sin. He was a moral person who was polluted with original sin from conception. And here he says that God was knitting him together not knitting together a clump of cells that was eventually infused with a human soul and became a human person when the Supreme Court declared it. No, this is actually saying that from conception, David was worthy of these first-person pronouns. I. Me. The one from conception that you were forming and knitting together was me. It was me. I was the one in there, not just a clump of cells to be later infused with a soul. So, this human personhood begins at conception and therefore any killing of a human person in the womb from, from conception is murder. Okay, If you're intentionally killing the child, now the question is raised about the life of the mother. Um, and certainly there are instances where there may be a situation where the best thing to protect both the mother and the child in very rare cases, um, if, if you don't do something, they're both going to die. And so you might attempt to extract the child prematurely and do the best that you can to preserve the life of both the mother and the child. But that's not killing the baby. That's not saying, let's go in, just like at the abortion clinic, let's murder that child. That's saying, actually... Let's use all of our resources and technology and medical science to try to find ways to extract children in the womb at earlier and earlier stages so that we can protect both mother and child. So there are uh, premature extractions that may need to take place, but that's not going in to murder the child. That's using all the best medical abilities that we have to try to preserve both the mother and the child. I'm not sure that's happening uh, in our society and that's something to lament and something that Christians ought to labor to, to, to promote uh, greater and greater ability to do that sort of thing, to, to protect both the mother and the child. But the point is if you go in there to kill the child, uh, that's murder. And that's a huge problem. Now, um, our text goes on to tell us that unavenged innocent blood pollutes and defiles the land wherein that blood is shed. So, a child is murdered, 
there should be a reckoning. There should be justice. If there's not, if that innocent blood is unavenged, then it begins to pollute and defile the land. And you can see this in verse 33, so you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. God has ordained civil government, and one of the purposes of civil government, having the power of the sword, Romans 13, is to punish evil, to purge the land, to cleanse the land, where there has been an unjust taking of life, the Bible says that there needs to be closure, there needs to be a just recompense, a just penalty that is meted out with the sword, as it were, with the power of death by the civil magistrate. Otherwise, what happens? The land becomes a field of blood. Blood that is crying out from the ground for justice. And we're told in verse 34 that this land is the land that Israel inhabits. It's the land where God is present, where He dwells among His people. And you say, well, that's unique to Canaan. But again, He's already told us time and time again that these same principles applied to the Canaanites. These same principles applied to the Gentile nations. And if we really want to go under the microscope a little bit here, we can say that in our own state of Michigan, there are many true and faithful churches of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the land. God has established His church and His kingdom in the state of Michigan. God is present. Christ is present where two or three are gathered together in His name to worship Him. God is present in the praises of His people. Psalm 22, Jesus says, Surely I will be with you to the end of the age as His church goes out to preach the Word and instruct people and baptize and teach according to the Great Commission. God is present. Christ is present. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are here in this land. So God does dwell in our land. What a horrible thing to think if God departed from the state of Michigan. No, God is present in His people, in His church, here in the state of Michigan. He's he's obviously omnipresent if you want to go in that direction as well, but these principles apply here and now to the state of Michigan. If we do not consider murder to be murder and punish it as such, Our land is defiled, and that's what we've been seeing for at least 49 years since the Roe v. Wade decision. Let me illustrate this principle. Turn to 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. It says this, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites had tricked Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant, a peace treaty with them earlier in uh, Israel's history. And, And yet they made that covenant. They had to honor that. But Saul wickedly slaughtered many of them against that covenant promise that Israel had made under Joshua. Verse 2, So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them, 
Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? What is the relief or redress that you're seeking? And with what shall I make atonement or cleansing, same word from our Scripture text, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Now when he says any man, he means just any man. Um, Don't just kill any random person. That's the point. Then they answered the king, verse 5, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. Now there's, there's good reason to believe that these seven sons that were chosen were specifically involved in Saul's campaign against the Gibeonites. I don't believe that these were seven random people that had no involvement. But, uh, verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth. So, so he, he made certain not to include Mephibosheth in that. Uh, he goes on to put these seven men to death. They're put to death. They're hanged before the Lord by the Gibeonites. And then we're told, verse 9, Midway through, so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. And eventually, uh, at the end of verse 14, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So I know it's a somewhat of an extraordinary case, but here's the basic principle, and the use of this word atonement is relevant. When there is the shedding of innocent blood, there must be a reckoning according to biblical justice. When there is not, God chastens and judges the land, the nation, the state of Michigan. He chastens. He sends famines. He sends pestilence. He sends these tokens of His wrath and displeasure against us because the blood of the innocents is crying out from the ground. Now again, That's a general principle. I really don't want to take that particular text and apply it in any more specific manner here in our situation, but that's an illustration of how this worked out, at least in one extraordinary case. Now, when our nation, when our state, when society at large fails in its duty to impose biblical justice, God purges the land Himself. God takes action directly. We see this with Cain and Abel. Abel's blood cried out from the ground and God directly confronted Cain and cursed him and judged him. We see it in the case of the flood. Genesis 6 verse 11, in the days of Noah, there was great violence among mankind. That's one of the reasons that God brought the flood and directly judged mankind because of the rampant violence that was taking place on the earth, the shedding of innocent blood. And the civil magistrates at that time were not doing anything, and so God directly brings a massive judgment 
and slaughters men, women, children, old people, young people, everybody but Noah and his household. We think of Pharaoh when that new Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph and who began to feel threatened by the ever-multiplying people of Israel in the land of Goshen. And so he institutes this policy to limit that multiplication, eventually to put the little children to death, the little male Hebrew babies to death, that they're to be thrown in the Nile. And uh, no doubt there were rivers of innocent blood that were shed in the days of that Pharaoh. And nothing was done about it until God raised up Moses. And God showed initially His displeasure with that specific sin of the Egyptians in that the first plague was turning the waters of the Nile into blood. That was God's way of saying, I've seen what you've done and your land is defiled and the Nile is going to stink it will be polluted and defiled with blood because you have cast these little human persons into that river. You've turned this means of water and life and sustaining of the community, this this source of blessing that I've given you providentially, and you've turned it into a means of death. You've polluted the land, so God caused the Nile to be turned to blood, and it stank. And the bookends of these plagues really indicate God's displeasure with this specific sin because the tenth plague, of course, was God striking dead the the firstborn male children throughout the land of Egypt. And if that was not enough for God to get His point across, we see Him raising up, hardening Pharaoh's heart, raising him up with all of His chariots and horses and soldiers seeking to chase down the children of Israel at Pi-Hahiroth at the Red Sea, to corner them and to slaughter them and to shed their innocent blood. And by the end of it, God caused the waters of the Red Sea to drown and consume Pharaoh and his host. So, you're going to drown these little human persons, Pharaoh? Well, eventually God drowned Pharaoh. And that, as they say, was that. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see Israel falling into the sin of sacrificing children in the valley of the son of Hinnom. You see Jesus even pronouncing judgment upon those of God's people who would shed the innocent blood of the prophets. Uh, The unbelieving Jews in the first century who really epitomized that spirit of bloodthirsty persecution and who eventually would crucify the Lord of glory Himself. Those who said, His blood be upon us and our children. Jesus speaks of them in Matthew 23-35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So the compound interest of their unavenged, innocent blood that defiled the land was coming due on that generation. My friends, in the state of Michigan, we should be concerned about the compound interest of 49 years of the slaughter of these human persons in the womb. We should be concerned, even if you know, Roe v. Wade's overturned, but we should be concerned about the compound interest on that sin debt nationally 
and corporately speaking here in the state of Michigan. Because you see, the state of Michigan has become a field of blood that, that for all we know from Scripture, has come under the curse of God and ought to be judged by God. So, what should be our response? We're encouraged by this recent ruling, no doubt. I hope we are. I hope we're very encouraged by it, but what do we do moving forward in closing here? How do we respond living today in this field of blood? Well, first, we ought to labor to outlaw abortion in all its forms. And again, I made that distinction with the life of the mother, and I'm not going to make that distinction again. But we ought to outlaw all forms of abortion, even the taking of the life of a human person just after conception through some type of morning-after pill. Uh, A person's a person, no matter how small, that's murder. I know we don't, you know, perhaps we don't get as emotional about that form of murder as other forms, but my friends, what was the basis of capital punishment for murder in Genesis chapter 9? It was not because this is really emotionally difficult to deal with because it's a little baby. No, the reason that it's murder and the reason it's punished with death is simply that that human person is made in the image of God. So if a fertilized egg, if a human person a day, an hour, a second after conception is made in the image of God and is being knit together in its mother's womb, if that is the case, then actually this is, this is a, a conflict between us and God. It's not just a horizontal case of human injustice, but all forms of intentional, willful Murdering of these uh, human persons ought to be punished and it ought to be regarded as murder because that's an image bearer and you're striking, uh, you're striking, as it were, a death blow against the glory of God. So we need to seek to actually implement laws against abortion. Now that involves the legislature. We currently have a law that hopefully will now come into effect very shortly But we need to make sure not only that we have that legislation, but that law enforcement and the legal system, the prosecutors, the attorney general, that these things are actually prosecuted. And if there are prosecutors that aren't going to do it, we need to find prosecutors that will, for the glory of God, enforce this principle of biblical justice. We need to outlaw abortion in all its forms. And secondly we need to see that abortion is punished as murder. Now, I speak in a society today where not even all forms of murder are punished with the death penalty. So that's a whole other question. So we're not even really addressing that question. We've already said, I think, enough to get the point across. But we need to see abortion regarded as murder because that's what it is. If it's anything less than murder... If it's anything less than murder, then we've missed the entire point of the Sixth Commandment. We've missed the entire point of Genesis chapter 9. If it's a human person, it's murder. Period. End of story. And it needs to be punished as such. So these two things, don't think that the ruling actually outlaws abortion. It really doesn't if we as God's people don't lead the charge to see biblical justice enacted. And that means we need to double our efforts in appropriate ways. If we have time 
to devote to these causes or if we have money to give to these causes, we need to be vigilant because the, the door has been opened. Are we going to walk through it? We don't want to be like Israel that got to the very fringes of the promised land of Canaan and Kadesh Barnea and, and God says, all right, go forward into the promised land. And then they pulled back. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. We don't want to be like them. We want in faith to now say, all right, God is testing us. He's given us an opportunity now to do something. He's given us an opportunity. He's pulled out the hindrances. And the question is, are we just going to sit back and, and, and be happy that Roe v. Wade was overturned? Or are we actually going to now take steps, appropriate steps, biblical, charitable, godly, diligent steps to see that the sin of abortion is criminalized and punished and, and ultimately that these human persons are protected so that they have the same protection as the mothers who walk into the clinic. We want to see everybody protected as image bearers of God. But thirdly, finally, what can we do? And I would say first, and I've left it third, I've left it for last for, for that uh, because it is the most significant. But in a way, this is the first and foremost step we need to take, and that is to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice. And we are seeing in God's providence the Lord speaking to us through numerous events that we've seen in recent years. He is speaking to us. He's speaking in this recent ruling. He is speaking loud and clear. He is calling us to repent. He is calling us to be to do justice and love mercy. He's doing that. And Abel's blood, as it were, is crying out from the ground. And my friends, our prayer is that it stirs up the conscience of ourselves and of our nation, of our state. That it stirs up the consciences of those that we interact with in our family, among our friends, our co-workers. So that there is a sense of that judgment of God that is against us and the guilt that is against us for this corporate sin of allowing abortion, allowing the murder of these children. But what's the solution to that? Biblically speaking, that is not the end of the story. Hebrews 12 says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that of Abel. Zechariah 13.1 says, oh, you're polluted with innocent blood. Even the Jews who slaughtered Christ, it says even among the house of David, a fountain for uncleanness is opened up to cleanse even those who nailed Him to the cross. Even those who were defiled and polluted with the shedding of innocent blood. Even those who said, let His blood be upon us and our children. My friends, our prayer and our desire is that His blood would be upon them and their children. Savingly, redemptively, to pardon, to cleanse. And not just upon them, but upon all nations and upon our friends and our neighbors. Those even in the Christian church that have committed the sin of abortion. It's, it's not uncommon that people have been converted out of that or people have committed this great sin and they need to hear the message of the blood of Christ which speaks a better word that says your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. You're cleansed. You're justified. You're sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that 49-year compound interest on our corporate sin debt, nothing is going to wash that away but the blood of Jesus. And it may be that God sends a providential 
correction that's beyond what we can even think of. And, you know, if he did, then we would deserve it. But there's nothing that's going to in any way lessen the blow or work it for good or cleanse us in any way imaginable other than the blood of Jesus. We need to preach that blood. We need to receive and apply that blood to ourselves. And we need to cry out to God, pleading the blood of Jesus that this atonement, that this cleansing that we need as a society would come to pass as people hear and heed the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like for a society that has been bloody and unjust and deserves to be annihilated? What does it look like for a a, a wicked city or nation under the wrath of God to cry out for mercy and have that national sin debt pushed aside? We'll see that this evening when we consider the repentance of Nineveh. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for Your Word that You have wisely spoken to a broad variety of issues. We confess that we love the cross of Christ. It is our only hope. But we thank You that having been redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, that we have Your law and Your commandments which give us a blueprint for our lives, for our families, for our church, and even for human society and civil justice. We pray that You would give us wisdom in seeking to understand these principles, to teach and instruct, and we pray that there would be a great movement of Your Spirit to convert lost sinners under Your wrath, that they may be cleansed and purified and justified and sanctified, and that even our leaders would come to a knowledge of the truth, that You would cause them to do justice and to love mercy, to be a father to the fatherless, and to be a helper of widows and orphans even as is Your character as our compassionate Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.